The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Thanks for listening in to another episode of Data Gurus. I think that you'll find this conversation that I had with Andrea and Katie very honest. It is definitely highlights the shades of gray that occur between a client and a partner relationship. And it questions to what level of degree of transparency needs to be had to evolve as an industry. The other piece that I think is very encouraging is that we're starting to see brands ask the questions, the tough questions, which really weaves through the entire ecosystem in terms of being able to provide valuable insights and actionable insights to clients. Take a listen. I'm joined today by two fabulous women. I have Andrea Zerbriggen, who is the Strategic Sourcing Supply Manager at Escalante, and I have Katie Eggy, who is the Client Development Director at Paradigm Sample. Welcome, ladies. Hi, Seema. Thank you. Hi, ladies. Hello. I love talking to you guys. It feels like we could talk for hours about research, but also non-research topics. Yeah, we can do the latter today. (laughs) (laughs) We can cover a broad range. Let's get into it. Andrea, you've been with Escalante or even prior to that MSI for how many years? So actually, I got hired on Market Strategies exactly six years ago this week. Okay. So it's kind of funny seeing my memories on my social media this week of you know, moving to Atlanta from St. Louis and kind of starting this journey, totally green. They hired me on, this was my first quote unquote big kid job. Yes. So I was super excited, constantly posting photos of, you know, our old office and everything. So yeah, they shipped me out to Atlanta from St. Louis six years ago and the rest is history. (laughs) And what I thought would be really cool in this conversation is, Katie, obviously you're responsible for selling into the strategic accounts. And Andrea, you are a buyer of sample and data collection services from the industry. And just kind of comparing stories in terms of what works and what doesn't work. I think all too many times kind of, you know, we glean over the fine details of kind of what really works in a specific setting for different types of buyers. Definitely. And speaking from my end, what I find is incredibly important to remember and sometimes can be challenging to remember is every single company is different. We like to group together every single market research agency into one category. We like to group together all sample providers into one category. But really, it's taking the time to figure out the differences amongst each organization. And that's how you can be successful with supporting various companies when you take the time to get to know them on company level versus just a broad, oh, this is a market research agency category. 
I absolutely agree. So as a buyer of sample, of course, I'm approached in many different ways with lots of different personality types. And I will say kind of my favorite approach to that initial getting to know you conversation is opening it up with a question. And that's exactly what Katie did when we first met was ask, you know, about Escalant and ask about me and ask about our needs as opposed to starting the conversation with a panel book or my favorite, they start with capabilities that we do in-house. So they're trying to sell me programming. They're trying to sell me analytics. And I'm like, hey, you know, if you would have Googled. We already do that, right? We do that. (laughs) So, you know, unfortunately, you just wasted half of our very first meeting on nothing. (laughs) I like to look at each panel company individually as well, or whatever type of support company it might be. In my role, I manage vendors of really any type, right? Like if we need a technology platform, if we need a sample supplier, if we need a executive level recruiter or a moderator, that's something I would get my hands in and try and find the right source for each particular job that pops up. And, you know, you hear some blanket terms about sample companies in particular because so many are popping up overnight. You forget to look at them as individual companies and really chat through what it is they do, what it is they specialize, and what they feel like they can best support us on. So that's a conversation I think is really crucial in those initial kind of getting to know you courting calls, if you will. Sure. You were kind enough to say you're approached a lot. I mean, I would imagine you're probably bombarded a lot (laughs) with emails and phone calls of different providers. Give us an idea of how much kind of you get called on, if you will, from different vendors in the space about services that they want to, you know, bring to your attention. Yeah. So I would say I get hit up probably at least one to five times a week with new providers or current providers that uh, just want to talk about how they can, you know, quote unquote, additionally support you, which is great. But I actually was laughing earlier today because I realized it was Friday and I actually can't answer phone calls of numbers I don't recognize on Fridays because that seems to be international cold call day. Is that a thing in the sales world? Oh, that's interesting. And that's not something I've heard of, Andrea, but maybe that is a trend that a lot of companies are following these days. Well, I didn't know if maybe it was like, oh, this is the day people are happier, they're headed into the weekend, make more likely to chat. That's just my own little theory on it. But I do tend to receive the bulk of cold calls on Fridays or those like cold call emails that aren't even personalized and have tons of grammatical errors. That's always alarming. But but yeah, it's I definitely get hit up regularly. And that's part of the reason why we have a dedicated team to these efforts, right? It's to kind of safeguard the other teams from being bombarded. I personally always give the dignity of a response. Even if I can already tell it's something we wouldn't utilize, or if it's an unreliable source, there are some usual clear signs on that front. But I always respond and at least explain that we're not currently looking to expand our vendor network. And I do save their information in case 
you know, something changes in the future, but it can be a little bit of a struggle because trying to get your day-to-day done, but you also have to keep yourself open to learning about new sources because you never know what's going to come around in the industry and it's constantly changing. So it's an interesting balance. I think I'm still learning even six years in. Now, Andrea, you caught my attention. I am curious. You alluded to some of the grammatical errors and things along those lines, but are there any other red flags that tend to stand out to you that signal that perhaps this isn't going to be best fit for Escalant at this point in time? I hate to say it, but sometimes the name of the company is already an indicator. We have a running joke here with the sourcing team at Escalant. If there are several Zs in this, name, you know, it's suspect. I don't know what it is, but like panel Z's are awesome Z. And it's like, why did they add a Z to that name? I'm like, (laughs) about that choice. But name is number one. Grammatical errors is number two. Check out the website. If it's pure garbage, that's number three. But the biggest, absolute biggest red flag for me is if an initial email or an initial call, they say they can do it all, right? Because nobody can do it all. I think that's a clear indication that you're not going to get the transparency that you really need to be successful partners. Because at the end of the day, each company has their specialty. Each company has their set of experience. And sure, they can certainly go outside of that experience. You know, we see new opportunities that we haven't worked on previously, and we find a really great way to get it done. But At the end of the day, pitching yourself is like a do-it-all, know-it-all. For me as a buyer, I already know, A, you're outsourcing a shit ton of that, and B, that comes with some painful experiences too. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think there's this fine balance of, you know, I think so much of sales and service is about building trust and credibility. And with that, there's that fine balance of saying, here's what we do. This is how we do it. And then also being able to be very specific in terms of meeting the client's needs and objectives. And sometimes that means you can't do everything. And we've, you know, I always firmly believe that. And I think I say this all the time. It's like, you got to be able to sleep at night knowing that you can do what you said you're going to do, but it is a fine balance. I absolutely agree. And I, you know, I want people to know folks that are in the, you know, business development client relationship space. We clients know you can't do it all and that's okay. We all have a space here, right? Like if we all hang out in our lane, do what we do really well, we can all cohesively work together and create phenomenal research. And in my mind, that's the number one goal. I need you to get it done. She needs them to get it done. And that's the purpose of having so many different organizations in the space. And it's getting more and more confusing too, because I think with all these API connections and, you know, the way that specifically in sample spaces, it's happening is that it just feels like everybody's connected to everybody else. And then other people add different algorithms engagement models to whatever they're doing. And, you know, they can optimize a respondent's experience more so than the other person who might be connected as well. So it gets murky. It does. And it where I have a problem with it is when the honesty gets dumped out of the, you know, the equation there. The whole having the curtain between the quote-unquote client and the quote-unquote panel source, it's really got to go like 
we need to peek behind that curtain. We need to understand your processes and protocols. We need to understand who you're partnering with and why, you know, our clients are, are starting to ask really great questions about where are these people coming from? And I don't know that that was a question previously, but now they're like, you know what? That's weird. Where are these people coming from? And, you know, me as someone who manages the panel vendors that we partner with, I have to be able to give them very clear cut answers. And I got to say, it's like pulling teeth sometimes to get those answers out of certain companies. There are ones that are really strong about communicating those processes, about sharing exactly, you know, what sources they're using and why. You know, if, if you have a reason for utilizing a certain source for a certain population, by all means, like, I'm all for it, as long as we can clearly communicate to all parties involved why those sources are being used, right? Andrea, how many times does a sample provider specifically tell you which sample, like other sample companies they're partnering with? Well, so that's actually changing. It used to be that, you know, we fully allowed aggregation we understand that there's a lot of sample spit being swapped around, and that's just the industry today. Frankly, the projects that we're seeing come through, there's no other way to get it done other than utilizing several sources. We more recently started asking those types of questions around specific sources that they're using. I would say about 50 or so percent of our partners are 100% transparent and happy to provide those names. And then the other half gets a little sticky, a little nervous, a little fishy. And that makes me uncomfortable as a buyer because I don't understand why that needs to be hidden. From your perspective, why do you think certain companies are a little bit more sketchy when asked those questions? I think it's a double-edged sword. So you have two primary reasons for that. The first is sample. If you are a true sample provider and that is your primary asset, your partner network is then an extension of your asset. And there's a fear that your client will then simply go to your partners directly to save costs. So that's option A. The other option is what we ultimately fear is that there is something shady going on behind the scenes and they don't want to disclose it. Okay. I mean, and that makes sense. So those are what I find the two reasons. And I'm, you know, I can't speak for other people in the role that I'm in. But for me, in my opinion, it would be just a shitty move to start going directly to those reference, right? Like my intentions are good on exposing who's on the job. We are starting to have to request source variables being identified. We recently experienced a project where we were under the impression that it was being solely sourced through the partner that we commissioned for the job. This was in the financial services industry. And we're combing through the data and we're finding something funky. We do a lot of syndicated work in financial services. So we have lots of historical data to compare to, which is handy, right? But it was easy to expose that either these respondents weren't the correct people or they were misunderstanding the questions. It just something was not lining up because the responses didn't look like they really should from this population. 
So we went back to our panel provider and, you know, asked them their thoughts on why we might be seeing that funky data. And then it was exposed that they had multi-source this on their end. And it took several days to identify the single source that provided the faulty respondents. And, you know, in this industry, we just don't have that kind of time to uncover the issues because, you know, within two days, we already have to have solutions in place. So moving forward, we are demanding more transparency. You know, and I'm open to talking about with our partners, how we can give them the confidence that we're not going to go behind their backs and approach the partners directly. You know, I get it, but I look at all of this, a true partnership, like it has to be a triple win, right? The client has to win, we have to win, and you guys have to win. Otherwise, it's not a success from my perspective. I think that is such important tenet in terms of business. Like it's not about one person winning and the other one losing. It's really about how does the ecosystem win, right? And that is from client to all the agencies to the providers of different services to the agencies. And, you know, I applaud you for having that philosophy. I don't think it's widely held in some instances, but I do think it's changing. I do think that people are starting to believe that to kind of preserve our industry and not just survive, but make it thrive. We have to work together and everybody has to win. It's really important. You pointed out something that I thought was really encouraging. So the end clients are actually now getting involved in understanding sourcing and sample. You know, I view that as a, a win, meaning they actually are looking at the entire research process. That's going to kind of drive the insights you guys deliver. What's your perspective on that? I wholeheartedly agree. I think it shows in the process, it's commitment to quality. And these are things that all of us should be shouting from the rooftops. I had a relatively recent conversation with a potential panel provider. Spoiler alert, we will not be working together. But in our just initial call, our getting to know you courting call, I asked about, you know, quality control, what kinds of quality processes they had in place. And this individual responded, I'm not sure no one's ever asked me that before, which sent into my throat. (laughs) I'm thinking, gosh, you know, this is quite dangerous for industry, right? We're already up against a lot of challenges. We've got people who are like, Ew, do you call me to make me take a survey? I tell people I work in research, not market research, because they picture me calling them to harass them with survey opportunities. And so we're up against that and we're up against people calling us on our bullshit. And so I feel like we should all be leading with the quality conversation. That's clutch. And I think that's what our end clients are wanting to hear. They want to learn you know, how these panels are created, how they're nursed, how they're cared for. That's actually phenomenal news to hear the increased engagement from end clients, because I do think that that teamwork is going to help us continue to grow as an industry, getting all players involved to the level of sample, to the initial starting point of some of these research projects. I am curious, you know, hand in hand with quality, we've been talking a lot about respondent experience and engagement. Have your end clients been expressing more interest in some of those areas as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think they at Escalate are recognizing that, you know, these are human beings and human behavior drives everything. We are not surveying robots. So we have to take that human factor into consideration when we're scoping things out, when we're pricing things out in field work. There's a lot of nuance to understand. And, you know, as our opportunities get more and more complex as the years tick on, we have to have those conversations with clients. We have to make them understand that a stage four breast cancer patient should not be asked to do a three-hour in-home ethnography followed with seven-day online bulletin board, followed with it in-person, in-facility IDI. That's inappropriate. We have to look at who we're trying to talk to. So, and that's a, a biggie I always turn to for an example because, you know, that individual does not care about market research. You know, their priorities are on the most important things, their family and their limited time, right? So, we are having those conversations with and clients like, you know, sir, madam, you're wanting to survey CEOs. You want to send them a 45-minute web survey. When's the last time you were able to have a 45-minute phone call with the CEO of your company? Just curious. You know, do they have a lot of extra time on their hands? Or, you know, what incentivizes them to be on a panel? Like, I've been always screaming <laughs> this stuff from the beginning, but I think it's finally going through because it matters. It impacts the study at its core. And at the end of the day, if panel respondents are not having a positive experience on your panel, they will leave, period. And then we lose the opportunity to talk to them, whether they're a stay-at-home mom, whether they're a Starbucks lover, or whether they're, you know, caregiver of someone with Alzheimer's. I mean, their time matters. And we have to, at the core of what we're doing, look at how we can best serve those individuals. I'm very passionate about this because we need to step out of our panel as a commodity hat and put on our human hat. Right. Well, and I also think, you know, to your point, and Katie and I have discussed this as well, it's like, you know, you always look at a survey and say, would I do this survey? Mm -hmm. Is it something that I, you know, I would give my time because that's the only thing you don't ever get back to a survey. And I think, you know, your view, your advocacy for the respondent or the participant is exactly what we need. Yeah, it's not an easy conversation to have. Sometimes people don't want to hear it. Right. You know, I love being the finder and the fixer here. <laughs> I think it's yes. a very fun, dynamic, constantly challenging role. But it sometimes is hard to step out of the research mindset and just speak from, you know, a human perspective. I use this a lot when we talk about incidence rate and how that impacts the study, because I don't think everybody understands how panel truly functions. It's appropriate use, it's limitations. As we all know, it's, of course, a very handy tool, but it can quickly be misused or misrepresented. And, you know, that shows in some of the examples of populations I mentioned earlier that people want to find on panel. But, you know, IR is a big topic here because I don't know that everyone fully understands, you know, like what is targeting? How does that impact IR? What if the targeting's there, but participants have not elected to profile themselves as that. How do we navigate those pools of respondents? I always looked at it as, okay, so I live in St. Louis, so we're a big baseball town. So if I'm at Bush Stadium 
and it's packed. It's Friday night. So there's 50 to 60,000 people in the stadium. You know, how many individuals in the stadium right now would qualify for this study? That's just kind of my little handy trick. Yes, I are. Because you have a pretty diverse set of individuals, a ballpark, unless it comes to certain ailments that prevent you from coming, etc. And I always take those things into account. But yeah, it's these are all kind of the good conversations that we're constantly having here that I think will only help us at the end of the day. And I'm hoping some of that is making it to the end client so they can really understand where we're coming from, especially if we have to decline a job, which you always hate to do. But if you have a really good reason for it, I think it's good to talk about. Are you mixing methodologies to that end to be able to get the participant in the optimal mode or methodology to capture feedback? Have you started doing that or have you been doing that? Absolutely. Yeah, we've almost always been doing that. I call it the Frankenstein's monster approach. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we can snag some on panel, we can snag some on phone. We've got some, some really phenomenal recruiters who will network, shake hands, kiss babies, find the right people. It takes them all. It takes a village. And that's why I preach that having all of these organizations in the story working together is only going to, you know, future proof the market research industry. For sure. Definitely. Ladies, I want to thank you for joining this conversation on a fabulous Friday. Thanks for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, I look forward to continuing our conversation. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And by the way, I think we've identified a new Halloween costume. It's the Frankenstein Project, right? What did you call it? Frankenstein's Monster Project. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Thank you. Have a great day ahead. Thank you. You too. Bye, ladies. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening in today. I have to say the thing that really, if you take anything away from this podcast, is that for us to succeed as an industry, all parties have to win. The client has to win. The agency has to win. It's a goods and services provider, either it's panel, programming, whatever those services are that are being delivered has to win. And I'll also go a step further in saying the person participating in the research has to win. And if we do that, and I know that we're having conversations and people are striving towards this goal, I believe that we will continue to thrive as an industry. Take care and tune in next week. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.